My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. The town of Escalante, Utah was first founded by Mormon settlers back in the 1870s. By 1934, the town was already five years into the Great Depression, and poverty was rampant. Within a span of a few short years, the town was struck by a wave of misfortune that was positively biblical. From the Depression to a plague of grasshoppers destroying all the crops, followed by the worst drought the state had seen in 80 years. So when on a chilly November morning, a stranger rode into town in the back of a tiny burrow, the locals were naturally curious, and some even more than a little suspicious. He came from the west, leading a second burrow packed with camping gear. He was handsome, and he wore a floppy hat and a pale orange shirt that fluttered in the wind. The 20-year-old man from California was named Everett Roos. He told some of the locals he'd been wandering across the southwest for the past five years. He said he was an artist, and that he'd been traveling the land looking for inspiration for his work. Some of the young boys from Escalante took a shine to the stranger immediately. He was something exciting and different in the humdrum little town. And he had a bunch of great stories about his adventures. Over the following week, Roos took the boys horseback riding with him along the nearby ridges. They hunted for arrowheads with him. He taught them how to make fire with only two sticks. The boys ate venison and potatoes cooked over a crackling fire as the stranger shared stories about the Indians who had inhabited these lands for centuries. But as well-traveled as Everett Roos claimed to be, some of the Escalante natives noticed that he wasn't as well-equipped for such a journey as he should have been. His burrows were small, and neither one of them appeared to be packed with all the provisions someone living off the land would need. He didn't even appear to have a tent or a camp stove. When one of the locals pointed out he didn't even have a week's worth of food with him, Everett just smiled and said he didn't need much. He only had a pack of spotted dog with him, a mixture of rice and raisins with condensed milk. The locals gave him some potatoes to take with him on his journey into the desert. They offered him jars of fruit, but he told them he didn't have any room to carry them in his small packs. On his final day in town, Everett Roos took some of the boys he'd befriended to the movies. The film was titled, Death Takes a Holiday. Everett Roos left Escalante and headed southeast along the Hole in the Rock Trail. This was the same trail Mormon pioneers used back around 1879 that led them to the first major Mormon settlement in southeastern Utah. This path led Roos beyond the Pinon jupiter forests surrounding Escalante into dry, barren desert. A week later and more than 50 miles further along the trail, 
A pair of shepherds encountered Roost near a dry tributary of the Escalante River known as Soda Gulch. They invited the young man to share camp with them. During the two nights he spent with the shepherds, Everett asked them lots of questions about the terrain and about any of the native ruins throughout the area. Before he went on his way, they offered Everett a piece of mutton to take with him, but Everett politely declined, saying that he didn't have any room for it in his saddlebags. He told them he already had plenty of food. On the morning of November 21st, 1934, the two shepherds wished Everett Roos well on his journey, and they watched his burrows amble away along the trail, heading southeast. He was headed in the direction of the Hole in the Rock, a steep cleft that back in 1880 Mormon pioneers had painstakingly navigated, lowering their wagons one by one down a massive precipice on their way to the Colorado River. As the two men watched Everett Roos get smaller and smaller in the distance, no one knew this would be the last time anyone ever saw Everett Roos again. Although this young artist was still unknown at the time, his legend would grow and grow throughout the American Southwest over the decades that followed. Today, the town of Escalante hosts an annual arts festival, better known as Everett Roos Days. And although today the young man is often hailed for his art and writings as a creative genius, the question remains, whatever happened to Everett Roos? I'm Nate Hale the Where's Waldo of the podcasting world. And this is The Conspirators. On September 6th, 1992, some moose hunters discovered the decomposed body of a young man named Christopher McCandless just outside the northern border of the Denali National Park. He had died inside a rusting old bus that had served as a makeshift shelter for trappers and other wanderers throughout the wilderness. Taped to the door was a page torn from a novel by Nikolai Gogol that contained Chris McCandless's last cry for help. Attention possible visitors, SOS, I need your help. I am injured, near death, and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you. Chris McCandless, August. Followed by a question mark. Based on a cryptic diary discovered with the remains, it appeared McCandless had been dead for 19 days. Although his driver's license issued eight months earlier indicated Chris had weighed 140 pounds, Based on the physical remains left behind, it's estimated McCandless was down to only 67 pounds at the time of his death. The story of Chris McCandless, a 24-year-old man who decided to live a nomadic lifestyle throughout the Alaskan bush, only to lose his life there, was eventually made into a best-selling book by John Krakauer, and from there a Hollywood movie. But while Krakauer was researching his book, he also learned about the story of Everett Roos, and was so struck by the parallels between the young men's lives that he dedicated a chapter of Into the Wild to Roos's story. 
We can only speculate so far as to what drives such wanderlust for a young man to live such a vagabond lifestyle. A life where you pack up and live in the wild beyond all rules and worldly connections. To live on your own among nature, surviving off the land. In the case of Everett Roos, we do know that his parents encouraged him to live life to its fullest. Everett was born on March 28, 1914 to Christopher and Stella Roos. Chris Roos was a former Unitarian minister who went on to become a successful businessman. Everett's mother Stella was a dancer and an artist in her own right. She encouraged Everett and his older brother Waldo, who was named after Ralph Waldo Emerson, to pursue their passions. She introduced the brothers to art, poetry, and fine literature at an early age. She also encouraged them to keep personal journals and to share them with the family. According to Stella, Everett always had a habit of wandering off even as a toddler. She ended up having to tie him to the front porch to keep him from getting lost. As he grew older, Everett turned his bedroom into his own personal museum, full of interesting objects he found as he wandered the neighborhood, as well as pieces of his family's artwork. By the time Everett turned 16, he began traveling throughout Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, and Colorado learning about the Native American tribes and drawing inspiration for his poetry and block prints from the landscape. Along the way, he began to rub shoulders with and was mentored by a number of giants in the arts community, including Ansel Adams, Maynard Dixon, Edward Weston, and Dorothea Lang. Ansel Adams actually hung one of Everett's block prints in his bedroom. And Dorothea Lang shot a series of portraits of Everett that would end up being used on his missing posters. Lang is probably best known for taking what is considered the most famous portrait of the Great Depression, a photo of a woman titled Migrant Mother. Throughout Everett's journeys, his parents Chris and Stella provided a constant lifeline for him. They exchanged letters often, and Chris and Stella would send Everett care packages of money, art supplies, and even his favorite breakfast cereal, Grape Nuts. They even had a standing offer to come get Everett anytime, anywhere, should he ever get in trouble or just want to come home. In November of 1934, Chris and Stella received an unusual letter from Everett that included a few recent pieces of art he had done, some newspaper clippings, and some money. He had never done that before. But even still, Chris and Stella had no cause for alarm at that point. Everett told them in his letter it might be several months before they heard from him again because he was planning on traveling deep into the wilderness, where it would become difficult to send or receive mail. That was the last time Chris and Stella ever heard from their son. Several months later, Chris and Stella's letters and care pack just began piling up in a remote mail outpost in Arizona, and were eventually shipped back, returned to sender. This is when Everett's parents finally began to become truly concerned. In February 1935, they contacted the authorities as well as several local newspapers to report their son missing. The big stumbling block the Ruses ran into early on was they didn't really know where to look. Everett could have literally gone anywhere, in any direction. They got their first big break when the postmistress for Escalante, Utah contacted them to tell them Everett had last been seen passing through their little town. 
Authorities eventually found their way to the two shepherds who had last seen Everett. They told them that Everett had seemed keenly interested in finding any prehistoric settlements that might still remain in the area. They also suggested Everett may have been headed through the canyons to study the lovely orange and purple sediment that streaked the rocky walls. One problem was that just a few days after the men last spoke to Everett, a major snowstorm swept through the area. This didn't bode well if Everett was caught unprepared out in the canyons when the snow hit. The county commissioner sent out a search party the first week of March to search the ravines near Escalante. There was no sign of Everett in either Soda Gulch or Willow Gulch. But when the team got to Davis Gulch, they did find evidence Everett had been there. They discovered Everett's burrows penned into an area so they couldn't wander off. The fact that Everett might have left his burrows behind wasn't unusual either. He had done so a few times in the past when he had a rather stubborn burrow that wouldn't traverse a waterway or climb a cliff where he wanted to go. Everett had a habit of releasing the burrow into the wild and buying another later on. The search party found a halter and a few of Everett's supplies, but they didn't find Everett's camping gear, any of his journals, or art supplies. They did find one potentially disturbing clue in the form of a set of size 9 boot prints that led straight to the edge of a cliff. The searchers feared Everett might have slipped and fallen over the edge. But when they searched the ravine below, Everett's body was nowhere to be found. But those weren't the only clues the search party found that pointed toward Everett having come through that area. At a cliff face, they found some graffiti etched into the rock wall that said three words, November 1934, and below that the word Nemo. Finding graffiti on the rock walls wasn't unheard of, and there was nothing about the message the search party could see that directly tied it to Everett Roos. So the searchers decided not to tell Chris and Stella about what they had found until they had more definitive evidence of what happened to Everett. A couple weeks later, the county commissioners sent out a larger search party to scour the area. At that point, most of the searchers were expecting to find Everett's remains. Even though Everett did have some survival skills... Most of the experienced outdoorsmen who went looking for the young man didn't think he was equipped to survive for very long in the harsh extremes of the desert wilderness. Then in March of that year, Chris and Stella received a letter from a man claiming to be a former military officer named Neil Johnson, who said he had a lead on wherever it could be. And even better, Johnson claimed, he was certain Everett was alive. Johnson said he'd heard a story from some native people that Everett had met a young Navajo girl and fallen in love, and that the two of them had run off together. Johnson offered to form his own search party to go find the runaway couple, but he needed $750, or approximately $3,500 in today's money, to pay for guides and get started. Chris and Stella were naturally skeptical. They believed that if Everett really had fallen in love, he would have told them. But before the Ruses could respond to Neil Johnson's letter, the man showed up on their doorstep unannounced. Johnson really pulled on the couple's heartstrings, telling them he was certain their boy was alive and he alone could find him. If the Ruses would just agree to fund his search, 
Johnson said he was certain he would bring Everett and his bride back home to them. And one day, Chris and Stella might even welcome a grandchild into their lives. Ultimately, Chris agreed and paid Johnson the money he was asking for. In June, Johnson wrote to them and told them he and his men still hadn't found anything definitive. But they were still on the trail and they had found some boot prints matching Everett's shoe size as well as another carving with the enigmatic phrase, Nemo 1934. At that point, the Russes didn't know anything about the etching the earlier search party had found, so this was all news to them. Stella was increasingly hopeful after hearing about the carvings. She was certain that these messages had been left by Everett, and she even had a few ideas as to what they could mean. Stella's earliest thought was that the name Nemo was a reference to Everett's love of Greek mythology. There's a story in Homer's The Odyssey in which Odysseus tricks the Cyclops by telling him his name is Nemo, which translates to nobody. So when the Cyclops is battling Odysseus and cries out for help from his fellow monsters, he shouts, Nemo is attacking me, which the other monsters interpret as, nobody is attacking me. So none of his fellow creatures come to his aid, giving Odysseus the opportunity to escape. Stella and Chris didn't know why their son might want to refer to himself as nobody, but they remained hopeful it really was him that carved the message. One other possibility Stella considered is that the name was actually in reference to one of Everett's favorite books, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which features the character of Captain Nemo, the legendary explorer who charts the unknown ocean depths in his submarine, the Nautilus. By June of 1935, Chris and Stella's son had been missing for eight months. So the couple decided to head to the southwest and try to retrace his steps themselves. They sought out anyone ever it mentioned meeting in his letters. They hiked the same canyons he did, and even sat under some of the same trees. They eventually found the shepherds who last saw Everett, and around that time they also learned even more bad news. It turned out Neil Johnson was a con artist who took their money and ran. There was no other search party out looking for Everett. As their leads dried up, Chris and Stella turned to the only other person they knew who had been corresponding regularly with Everett, their other son, Waldo. Everett had been trading letters with his older brother for years even while Waldo was working as a missionary in China. But once Chris and Stella began asking what Everett had said to his brother, the two parents began to wonder how much they really knew about their youngest son after all. Everett shared a side of himself with Waldo that came as a complete shock to Chris and Stella. Although Everett's parents thought of Everett as a self-confident free spirit, his letters to his brother express a great deal of self-doubt and emotional turmoil. Many of Everett's biographers and other researchers who have looked into his disappearance have read a great deal into those letters. In some of these letters, Everett writes to Waldo asking him to keep his secrets from their parents. Chris and Stella were surprised to learn about the time Everett almost drowned after he and his burrow fell in a river. Or another time whenever it spent eight days in the hospital with Poison Oak. But even beyond that are the times whenever it talks about his feelings of loneliness and isolation. 
Some researchers have read between the lines of those letters and come to the conclusion that Everett may have been secretly gay, and perhaps was suffering from depression and even having suicidal thoughts. In his high school yearbook, Everett published a poem titled Lonesome. In one letter written three years prior to his disappearance, Everett writes, I shall go on some last wilderness trip to a place I have known and loved. I shall not return. The following year, he wrote another letter in which he tells his brother, When the time comes to die, I'll find the wildest, loneliest, most desolate spot there is. In another letter written months later, Everett says, I don't expect you to understand my emotions more than anyone else, nor would it matter much if you did. Then in 1934, just a few months before he was last seen, Everett wrote, I have been having valuable experiences in San Francisco. I cherish them. For I know there will never be another period like this in my life. Chris later wrote in one of his own journals his great despair at how little he really knew about his son. By then, both he and Stella were forced to contemplate the terrible possibility that Everett may have taken his own life. Waldo steadfastly refused to accept this possibility, though. Everett may have been emotionally troubled, but he firmly believed his brother would never take such drastic action as commit suicide. On the contrary, Waldo believed his brother may still be out there somewhere on some personal journey to find his true self. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. One possible explanation as to what happened to Everett was a rumor that some local cattle rustlers from Escalante mistook Everett for an undercover government agent and murdered him to cover their illegal activities. Then they tossed his body in the Colorado River. In November of 1956, some prospectors claimed to have found a skeleton on the western bank of the Colorado River, not far from the hole in the rock. Although an investigation by the local sheriff's department ruled this out as being Everett's remains. Although the reasons for this ruling are unclear. In 1941, a different possible solution emerged when a Navajo man named Jack Crank came to everyone's attention after he began bragging that he had murdered Everett Roos. Jack Crank was never charged with Everett's murder. But it is true he was convicted of murdering a different wayward traveler and burying his body in the desert. According to Bud Ruscio's biography of Everett Roos, Crank murdered an elderly white man he encountered at a trading post because he needed the scalp of an enemy for ceremonial use and because he just generally hated white men. In 1952, Chris wrote a letter stating his belief that Jack Crank had murdered his son. Waldo would eventually begin to believe a different fate for Everett. He thought Everett must have died after a fall or some other accident in the desert. 
Stella kept holding out hope that her beloved son was still out there alive somewhere. She even developed a theory that he might have been suffering from amnesia brought on by a bee sting, which is why he never contacted them again. Apparently, this isn't completely as far-fetched as it sounds, either. Whenever it was little, he was stung by some bees and suffered some rather extreme symptoms after, including chills, nausea, and other symptoms of anaphylactic shock. Likewise, Waldo's daughter reported that her father once nearly died following a yellow jacket sting, which she also believes brought on his onset of dementia. In some rare instances, anaphylactic shock has been known to cause amnesia in the patient. But, despite this, there is no evidence whatsoever that anything of the sort happened to Everett Roos. In September 1938, a writer named Hugh Lacey wrote an article about Everett that appeared in Desert Magazine. Lacey's article is more of a celebration of Everett's life and work, but even still it opened the floodgates to a number of people who claimed to have seen Everett Roos alive and well. One story came from a young couple who were on a road trip to Mexico City when they stopped off for assistance to two young men whose car had broken down. One of the men insisted on showing the couple his portfolio of watercolors, claiming he could never let it out of his sight since it was his life's work. Later on, after reading the article in Desert Magazine and seeing a photo of the missing artist, the wife became convinced the young man she met alongside the road that day was Everett. On November 27, 1939, a man named Burton Bowen wrote to Chris claiming Everett was living in a federal transient camp under an alias. He said that Everett had been hitchhiking across the country in the company of a dog named Curly. It is true that Everett did have a dog named Curly at one point in his life, but what Bowen didn't know is that Curly ran away years before Everett disappeared. In March 1953, an article was published in a Salt Lake City newspaper about the discovery of an isolated camp in the desert with a year's supply of canned food in it. Much speculation was made at the time that this was actually Everett Roos's camp, but neither the authorities nor Stella and Chris believed Everett would ever have stocked up on such a large supply of food. No matter what really happened to Everett Roos, following Chris's death in 1954, Stella and Waldo decided to refocus their energies on building Everett's legacy. Stella and Waldo began collecting all of Everett's letters, block prints, poems, and journals, and began submitting them to gallery shows and art journals for publication. Hugh Lacey's articles were a major factor that propelled Everett to superstardom. Hundreds of readers wrote into Desert Magazine clamoring to know more about the elusive artist and poet. Eventually, many of Everett's writings and artwork would get published in a book titled On Desert Trails with Everett Roos. Stella would go on to establish a poetry competition in her son's name. And from there, Everett's reputation just grew and grew. The town of Escalante would go on to build its own vibrant art scene, and each year celebrates its very own Everett Roos days. One time in the 1960s, a screenwriter named Larry Kellner reached out to Stella and Waldo and began discussing the possibility of turning Everett's life into a screenplay for a TV show, or perhaps a book leading to a blockbuster movie. Kellner asked the family to provide him with some of Everett's writings in order to use for his research. 
But as the years wore on, Kellner's correspondence with Stella and Chris grew increasingly infrequent until it stopped altogether. In 1980, another writer named W.L. Bud Ruscio contacted Waldo asking if he could get his hands on some of Everett's work for his own biography of the young artist. By that point, Waldo was naturally skittish about handing over any more of his brother's work to another writer. He went and wrote to Larry Kellner again and was surprised to receive a response, even though it wasn't necessarily the one he wanted to hear. Kellner now claimed he never received any of Everett's work. Although he did say he managed to get his hands on some of Everett's journals and letters from the Escalante search party and he'd be willing to give them back to the family for the right price. Waldo made Kellner a cash offer, but Kellner balked and said that was too low. He didn't even accept when Waldo doubled his offer. Waldo later learned that Kellner sold those journals and other items off to other collectors. Today, Everett Roos has become a household name throughout the American Southwest, and is thought of as something of a folk hero. You can buy posters, mugs, and t-shirts displaying Everett's artwork. There was a musical written about him, as well as several country songs. They even named a species of dinosaur after him, Tad Rusi. In 2007, Waldo died leaving the search for Everett in the hands of his children. One day, Waldo's son Brian received a call from a writer from National Geographic named David Roberts who said he believed Everett's remains had been found. Robert said he'd learned of a Navajo man named Aneth Nez, who claimed to have witnessed the murder of a white man he believed to be Everett Roos back in the 1930s. And what's more, he even had the remains to prove it. Nez said that he often liked to sit along the high ridges and survey the land below. One day he spotted an unusual sight a white man on two burrows laden down with gear wandering through the reservation. Nez said he spotted the man a couple more times over the following two days. But the next time he saw him after that, he could see something was terribly wrong. Nez said he saw the man being chased down by a couple of Ute Indians who were racing after the burrow on horseback. The Utes were longtime enemies of the Navajo tribe, so Nez knew to stay hidden. According to Nez, the Utes caught up to the man on his burrow, knocking him to the ground and began viciously beating him. They stole all the man's belongings, including his burrows, and left him lying broken and bloody on the desert floor. By the time Nez got down the ridge to him, the man was already dead. Nez didn't feel right just leaving the young man's body there to get picked apart by animals. So he scooped up the man's body and stashed it in a rocky crevice. But the Navajo have a superstition about coming in contact with a dead body, especially the blood. It's considered both shameful and bad luck. That's why it's believed Nez remained quiet about the incident throughout his life, only telling the story to his granddaughter Daisy in 1971. When Nez's grandson Denny heard the story, he was immediately intrigued and shared the tale with some of his friends. Those friends alerted Denny to the missing Everett Roos, who fit the young man's description. Denny went to the location where his grandfather said he stowed the remains and was shocked to discover a skeleton was right where he said it was. 
Archaeologists for the Navajo Nation gave their approval to allow for the skeleton's DNA to be tested. At the same time, some anthropologists reconstructed the skull based on Dorothea Lang's photographs of Everett. Brian and his three siblings all submitted their DNA for comparison. The results came back a 25% match, precisely what should be the case for their generation of the family. On top of that, the skull reproduction was the spitting image of Everett Roos. After that, National Geographic published an article announcing the mystery of Everett Roos's disappearance had finally been solved. Everett Roos's family were ecstatic and soon began making plans to have the remains cremated and scatter the ashes. But the family was abruptly forced to put their plans on hold when two months later, Utah State archaeologist Kevin Jones poured cold water on the celebration. After he announced the dental records from the 1930s didn't match the skull, Further tests by the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, who specializes in identifying the remains of unknown soldiers, found that the remains were likely that of a Native American man. National Geographic was forced to follow up their article with another article detailing how a new DNA testing technique had been used that can sometimes result in a false positive. In March 2010, the family of a missing Native American man named Joe Santa Stephen were informed that the remains initially identified as Roos were a DNA match to their missing family member. Afterwards, the remains were returned to the Navajo Nation where they were given a ceremonial burial. So to this day, we still don't know wherever Roos went or what fate befell him. What we do have are his art and his writings he left behind. The last letter Everett wrote to his brother Waldo gives only vague hints where he might have gone. It reads, As to when I revisit civilization, it will not be soon. I have not tired of the wilderness. It is enough that I am surrounded with beauty. This had been a full, rich year. I have left no strange or delightful thing undone I wanted to do. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Antonio, Linda, and Ace for signing up and helping support the show. I couldn't do this without the help and support of listeners like you. Thanks again to all my patrons. Just a reminder that patrons of the show can access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of exclusive mini-episodes. Another way you can help support the show is just check out our merch store, where you can purchase all sorts of conspirators t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're interested, I'll put a link to both my Patreon and store in the show notes. Yet another great way you can help us out is that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can also find our show in most of the places you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can list our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even write us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back with us next time.